Good evening, everyone. And if you have your Bibles, turn with us to the book of Revelation, to the third chapter. We are continuing our study of the seven churches of Asia, the letters to the seven churches of Asia that are, are, are given to us in the first, well, in the second and third chapter of Revelation. And tonight we're going to return our attention to the letter that was written to the church in Sardis. And Mingu is going to lead us in our study of that, so we're going to turn it over to Mingu. Okay, um, first let's read uh, the text, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is the letter to the Church of Sardis. Um, so we have some discussions here. And the first thing we would like to discuss is the background of the Sardis. If you have any uh, background knowledge, knowledge of the city of Sardis in this time, please go ahead. You know, each week we've gone over the different churches and the different cities, and each week we have learned that the culture and the society and uh, the people surrounding each congregation impacted, influenced, and in some cases infiltrated the church. And I think that happens regardless of where you are or, or where or what time you, you, you live. Culture has something to say about the church. And, and culture sometimes gets in the church. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a natural thing that that would happen. That makes sense that that would happen. Um, because the church is not exempt from the world. You know, the, the world, we're, we're not to be of the world, but that doesn't mean that we are able to be out of the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And so I think every week we've learned that it was difficult for these churches and these congregations to not let the culture and the society around them infiltrate them. But in this case, as we see many times in, in churches today, the culture around Sardis had infiltrated the church at Sardis. And I just want to go a little bit over what, what I've studied for today. It's just, if you have uh, True for Today commentary, uh, David Roper is what I'm going to be re referencing if you want to look at this, he, he puts it in a very good way. He says three things about the city of Sardis. He says Sardis had a history of past glory. Sardis had a history of overconfidence. And then he says Sardis was living 
on their past glory. And as you look at that first thought of they had a history of past glory, Sardis was one of the oldest cities in all of Asia. Uh, one of the oldest established cities, one of the greatest cities at that. Uh, at the foot of one of their mountains, uh, Roper writes that there was literally a river flowing with, with sand that had gold in it. So literally, they were one of the richest cities in all of the land because literally they had rivers almost of gold that they could get and, and use. And it was known in the country and throughout all the area of the ancient Near East that this was one of the richest cities around. Uh, in fact, Sardis was responsible uh, for the very first governmental-issued coinage. So Sardis, the city of Sardis, were, were the first city that we know of that had coinage issued by its government. And we see today, we still have coinage. And so it all goes back to Sardis, who was this rich city at this one point. So there's the history of past glory. But as you know, when you have glory, when you have a, a, a great, renowned reputation, sometimes that can lead to some overconfidence. Sometimes that can lead to some misplaced confidence, perhaps. Sardis was literally built, originally, on a very high place. It was built up on a very high place so that it was said to be impenetrable by anyone who would, who would dare to oppose it. Uh, almost like a citadel. No one would dare go against this city. And if you look at the history of Sardis, you can see at least two times that they were conquered because they were so confident that they would not be able to be defeated in battle that they didn't even have any guards protecting the city. And so there's a story of Cyrus of Persia that we were talking about this morning coming to that city and looking out and watching it for a few days and realizing, yeah, that's a high, that's a high place, it's a high mountain, but guess what? Their citizens get up and down it. So I'll just watch how the citizens get up and down it and I'll do it. And sure enough, he conquered Sardis because of that. And almost 100 years later, it happened yet again to Sardis. They had a history of overconfidence. And lastly, they were living on past glory. As, as we said, you know, this overconfidence, not only did they have cities, the, the city was full of, of monetary goods and, and gold and greatness, a great reputation. It was also kind of the intersection of three major roads throughout Asia. Three major roads kind of intersected right there at Sardis. So basically, all routes went through Sardis, and that led to great monetary gain, commercialism, and great wealth for the city of Sardis. So the, the point uh, Roper makes about them living on this past glory, by the time of, of the 90s AD, almost all of that glory had disappeared. They were living on what they were in the past, so much so that they couldn't realize how bad things had gotten in the present. William Barclay, a uh, noted uh, debater and, and student of the word, he once said about the city of Sardis, Sardis was a city of amateur dance band musicians and shopkeepers. 
so basically, you can think about this idea of Sardis that was once this titan of industry, this, this all roots lead to Sardis type of town that was impenetrable and could not be defeated in battle, but had now been relegated uh, from the, what was once prestigious, had now been rendered a town full of random passerbys trying to make it each and every day. That's what we can think about the city of Sardis. And so the church, as I'm saying, the church reflected that same attitude that the town itself had. The church reflected and showed that same exact look. They once were great, but because that greatness, they became overconfident to the point they were no longer great anymore. Now they were living solely on their greatness that had been way behind them years past. So that's a little background I found on the city of Sardis. Y'all find anything else? No, I think you got it all. I yeah. think that's about it. I think that's Sardis. Yeah. yeah. Great study. I mean, yeah. Very, I appreciate very, it. very well summarized. Yeah. Very well summarized. Yeah. Historically, geographically, social, and economically, you you touched everything. So. <laughs> okay. So the, then the question. The let's go to the the other uh, the next one. I know you. I mean, uh, the, the 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 description of Jesus, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What do you think the seven spirits of God and the seven stars mean here? Well, I didn't approach it from that angle. I went from uh, the, just a, a, what is it we should take away about Jesus from these statements. I didn't try to spend my time focusing on what the seven spirits were or what the seven stars were. For me, the, just the fact that there's a reference to the number seven, and we haven't, I don't think we've really done this much in this study, is talk about the symbolism of numbers that appear in the book of Revelation. And you can kind of get out of hand with that sometimes, but there is significance because it is apocalyptic literature. And the number seven traditionally uh, is associated with perfection and completion. And, and so the fact that there are seven spirits, Jesus is being associated with the seven spirits and seven stars, that number seven really stands out because it's repeated. And it's indicative of the fact that Jesus is perfect, Jesus is complete. And I think that's significant when you consider who he's writing to here, to the church in Sardis, who if you look at verse 2 in Revelation chapter 3, is told that by Jesus, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The one who is complete is looking at this church and saying, you're not complete. And, and so I think there is this um, contrast of trying to be depicted here in the, in the callback to, to the vision in the first chapter, the callback to verse 16 where Jesus is described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Uh, so I think there's this callback to Jesus in chapter 1, as the one who is complete, as the one who is perfect, and he is speaking to a church that he has found to be incomplete, imperfect. And, and so I, for me, I, that contrast of perfection, imperfection, completion, incompletion really stood out. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll add to that, and I think is spot on, is the idea that this isn't seven different spirits of God, seven different stars that he's holding. I think what Christ, I think what he's calling back to is this idea of completion. He has the full spirit of God. He has the full uh, authority over the stars. And this is a call back to what we see in John of Revelation chapter 1. 
uh, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was shining uh, like the sun shining in its strength, right? And so it's not that he has the seven different spirits of God, more so that he has the full measure. He has the completion, the full uh, gambit of the Spirit of God, just like he has the full power of God, and now that he has the full authority of the seven churches that he's writing to. So I think that it, it can kind of trip you up when you see seven spirits of God here. I think when you once once you kind of realize what Kyle's talking about, you know, the completion idea of that, that number, then he's saying, I've got the full measure of God, and with that full measure of God, I'm pouring it out on all of these congregations. I'm not holding back from any, uh, any measure of God or to any congregation at all. Okay. Um, uh, I agree that the seven, in this case, the number seven, uh, maybe represents or symbolizes the fullness of Jesus as the full of the Spirit and also which means the Holy Spirit, the full of the Holy Spirit. And, and so he knows everything and uh, he can do everything. And also he has seven stars and in his hand, uh, what we have in our hand is uh, we can dispose of it and we can do anything that we want with it. So probably the seven stars, if the seven stars mean the seven churches or all the churches, then uh, that the churches are in his hand mean that he can do anything to the churches. So he has the uh, control over the churches. One thing I'll add is just when you think about Sardis, what it says about, we've already read the passage we're gonna talk about uh, being dead, uh, you thought you're dead. You thought you're alive, but you're actually dead. Uh, then it talks about there being a few names, verse four, that have not defiled their garments. When I think about this description of Jesus, it is a bit of Jesus is the authority. Jesus knows. He's about to say, "I know your works," and so. Each and every week we've talked about how he's all-knowing. He knows what's been going on, and he can't hide anything from him. Um, all, all the things we've talked about each and every week. But I, I'm, I want to think about this description from the lens of those few names in Sardis who had not defiled their garments. What a comfort it would be to receive a letter from the Lord that says, I, I am the one that has the fullness of the Spirit of God mm -hmm. and I hold the church in my hand. Amen. And I, I think coming from the point of view of, of that, those few names that were holding fast to the truth, what a comforting thought to think that Jesus was protecting them. Mm -hmm. That Jesus was going to hold them and sustain them and protect them and guard them from the culture around them and from the people within this own church, brothers and sisters that were defiling their garments. To those in Sardis who had not defiled their garments, this description of Jesus, I think, would be so encouraging. And I think it might be the most encouraging description that Jesus gives of himself out of any of the cities. Just something I wanted to add. Yeah, um, it's interesting that this uh, letter doesn't have any commendation and also the list of sins that the Sardis church made. Uh, 
so, but only the description uh, in verse one says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So I think uh, this uh, verse is, uh, understanding this verse is a key to understand this whole letter. So what do you think the reputation of being alive and their being, their actually being dead mean in this letter? I think it's important that in this you see, I think the, the most important part in that statement is, I know your deeds that you have a name or you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It, I think what we, get, what we get there is that everybody, including themselves probably, they, they think that the church at Sardis is alive. That's, yeah, that's, for a second, I second guess I said the right church name. We've been going through a lot of congregations here. Um, they have a reputation of it. There's no false pretense that Christ says, okay, you are alive, but you also are dead. Or you have one foot in, one foot out. He, he flat out tells them, you only have the reputation of being alive. And that's all that you have because, in fact, you actually are dead in your works and in the reality of your righteousness outside of a few people who haven't soiled their, uh, defiled their garments. And so I think one of the things we can talk about, we can find in this contrast is, is that the reality of how our reputation, as much as we pour into it, and our image, as much as we want that to be perfectly cultivated, in God's eyes, that does not matter when it comes to what's underneath, right? We've all met people, we all know people that, um, on the outside, they seem like they've got their life together. When you talk to them, they really have everything planned out. They're so easy to talk to everything. And they can fool you, and they fool themselves to really feel like that they are doing really well in this situation. In reality, and when God sees them, maybe it's a completely different situation. And maybe a lot of us in this room tonight have been in that situation in our own shoes, right? When we have cultivated and put so much into our image of what we come across like, what we look like on Sunday morning between 9 and 11 o'clock, and how we act Wednesday nights from 7 to 8, we have this image of whether it's here at the building or maybe we're posting our, our favorite Bible verses on Facebook and making sure to, to share those posts here or, or post what retreats were going on there, right? We're so wrapped up in having that name of being alive that maybe we've even fooled ourselves here that we're dead. That in reality, our works and our righteousness are our God's eyes and not just being works, but our mindset and what we're doing is not there. Another thing I, th I found interesting in this passage is that this is one of the only, this is the only congregations we, we've really come up across so far that haven't been attacked by anybody. There's no Balaam, there's no Jezebel, there's no Nicola, Nicolaitans? Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. There's none of these people attacking. There's no false preachers. There's no false teachers going on. This congregation is, in, in some ways, there's healthy in the sense that they don't have that problem going on, and yet they still are described as a dead congregation. And, and, and when, when I was studying for this, one, thing, one of the things I come across is Satan doesn't have to attack things that he's not worried about, right? So here's a congregation that is comfortable in their own right, comfortable in that city, and Satan's not attacking them because they're actually not doing anything worthwhile attacking. And so this is a dead congregation, not because Satan has attacked them, not because of persecution, not because of false teaching, but because of their own works themselves have made them dead. Uh, what you were saying there about Satan not attacking someone who's not doing anything, mm -hmm. I, to me that's really the key here. I, I imagine that when Sardis got this, this letter, the book of Revelation comes to them, they're going to get to see uh, all these other congregations spoken to before them. Because this is circulating. This is not like each congregation got their own individual letter. They're getting the whole package. 
and it's kind of circulating through each congregation. So uh, imagine Sardis with the reputation that they have. You know, Ben did a great job talking about how the city had this reputation and that has spilt over into this congregation. They're used to being a, a church that has a great reputation, a sterling reputation. Imagine with their history, they're sitting there reading these letters and they're looking at Ephesus and Ephesus is commended for its emphasis on the truth and then Pergamum is commended for their uh, perseverance and Thyatira is commended for their service and, and so I'm sure they're sitting there going, all right, what's he going to say good about us? What's he going to commend us for? And then there's nothing, nothing positive to really praise them for. I mean, Jesus is going to say, yeah, you have a few there that haven't stained themselves, and that's great. But he really doesn't say, hey, here's the great thing you're doing. He doesn't go, I know your works and how you do this. He says, I know your works and you're not doing anything. You know, and I, can, I honestly believe that when the ministers got together a couple years ago and developed the Go and Do ministry, uh, that, that Ben orchestrates and oversees so well, I, I honestly believe one of the, the chief initiatives behind that, that that wasn't necessarily discussed among us, one of the chief initiatives was we don't want to be like Sardis. We don't want to ever be guilty of not working, of not doing, of not going. Because guess what? Jesus condemns inactivity just as much as he does compromise. Think about the parable of the talents, and it's the, the one guy who buries his talent and does nothing with it that gets the harshest criticism. It's the guy who is called lazy and slothful and wasteful. He's the one who's criticized because he did nothing with what he had. And to me, when Jesus can, criticizes the church in Sardis for their um, uh, re reputation reliance, for their being dead even though they think they're alive and so does everybody else what he's really in my opinion criticizing them for is not doing anything that they're they're not invading the enemy's territory so the enemy's not persecuting them and we don't ever want to be guilty of that because Jesus condemns that as much as he does compromising with the enemy and so for me, when I hear this um, idea of them being uh, really dead, to me it speaks to the fact that they're not doing anything that advances the kingdom of God into the territory of the enemy. That's how, how it kind of affects me when I read it. I think this uh, is, is like, it, it is a, a parallel with their history. They thought they were impenetrable. They thought they were impregnable, and because they were, they have, uh, they were built on a high place, and they had a very uh, good. I mean, they were on the advantage, advantageous point. But it was not. You know, when the uh, Persian army marched there, they didn't have any any watchtower. They didn't have any watchmen because they had overconfidence about themselves so if we as as a church if we have that kind of attitude then we will not post the watch towers around us and even uh, we would not post our a watch tower in our heart then the enemies will very easily you know conquer us overcome us and we will lose the battle so probably that is uh, 
very, uh, I mean, very much like a parallel of their history and the, and what the, you know, what is happening at the church. Anyone? Just real quick, uh, just for short of time, we we got time crunch tonight, but. When I think about this dead and alive aspect, it takes me back to the way God views things. The, the way God views things isn't the way man views things. The way God looks at a church and what God sees as effective sometimes isn't what men see as effective. You can have a congregation of 1,000, 2,000 people and be looked at as dead by God. And so I think that's what's going on in the Sardis church. You know, 1 Samuel 16, uh, God says, I don't look at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. When he's talking about Saul and David, and you look at this idea of Saul and David. Saul was the tallest man in all the nation. He was, he was a powerful warrior. He was the best-looking guy that they had ever seen. And so mankind goes, that's the one. Well, it turns out he was a terrible king. But when God chose a king, he chose a ruddy, short-looking, youngest child of Jesse that was a shepherd boy. Had no business being king. But God looked at it and looked at him and said, that's the one. And Jesus would say in Matthew 23, verse 28, Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says that to the Pharisees. Now, I'm not sure that Sardis was uh, guilty of, of being Pharisaical when it comes to the truth and, and putting borders around the truth like the Pharisees were. Maybe they were the opposite. Maybe they were so focused on love and, and service and, and, doing, and doing great things that within the church they were not practicing what God told them to practice. They were not worshiping the way God told them, commanded them to worship or whatever the case might be. But what we do know is the community thought that this was a great church. But sometimes what the community sees as a great church, God looks at and says, this is a dead church. And so I think the, the question obviously comes to us is, are we growing in, in favor Wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. That's what Jesus did. That's what Samuel did. When you look at, the, at, at, at ourself, are we only having the favor of the community? Are we only having the favor of God? To be a church that God is proud of, we have to have favor of both. Okay. Um, this letter has uh, the, <clears throat> the most number of uh, the most number of imperatives. In other words, commanding words: uh, wake up and you know strengthen and remember, keep it, repent. Uh, five commanding words. I mean, this is the most uh, cases out of the seven letters. So it is interesting uh, to understand uh, two verses two and three. What do you think of the? Uh, I mean, these verses are saying. One of the first things I thought about when I read this passage is that is that second imperative of strengthen the things that remain. I think that's a pretty good. Uh, I think that's a, that's pretty revealing in what we can take away from that in our lives today. 
Or maybe we've all found ourselves like in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where, you know, we have, we've come to the realization, okay, I'm not where I need to be. You know, I feel dead in my spiritual life. I feel like I don't have any traction. Or maybe it's not dead. Maybe it's I'm feeling a, a bout of apathy. And how do, I, how do I work through this apathy? You know, here I am as a Christian today, and I'm working through this low spiritual state, and I want to return to a, a good spiritual state with God, right? Now, no matter the context of what that is, and I like the order in which he goes up. Okay, first, there's that wake up. There's that kind of come to reality type moment. And then I think it's interesting. The, the very first thing that Christ tells him to do after that, that realization is strengthen the things that remain. Kind of take an inventory of your life and say, okay, where, what is it in my spiritual life that I am doing well at? What are some things that, okay, I can, that, that still come natural to me, that I still can pour into, I can still invest? Well, let me start, that, start there. If you're coming back from, the, like the church of Sardis, if you're coming back from almost a, a spiritual dead state here, and you're working way back up, I think it's interesting that he says, okay, the first thing you need to do is just work on the things you're good at. What, what is your natural strength? What are the things that you already, maybe you're already working on? You're, you're, not, you're not perfect at it, right? He would continue to say, you know, you have not finished these things to perfection, but the things that you're already striving at, you're doing well in, how can you, do, how can you continue to do that? And a lot of times, I, and I, I deal with this with students a lot, and I think, and just members in general, and it's personally in my life as well, if I am in a low state, and I start working on something that I know I'm good at, that I know that comes naturally at me, and naturally to me, then that gives me the confidence to start working on my imperfections. That gives me, that gives me the hope that, okay, I still have this. I still feel connected with God in, in this aspect. So through that... I can now, with that confidence, this new renewed energy, this whatever, whatever it may be, I can now start pouring into these other areas that need it, that, that, aren't, that aren't right, and kind of go from there. I just, the one thing I'll say is just verse 2, starting with the idea of wake up. I, I wonder if, if Jesus were to say that, you know, here he, he has John write it, but if he were to say that to the congregation, do you think, he would say it, wake up, wake up now, it's time to wake up. I perceive Jesus saying, wake up! <laughs> Jesus wouldn't whisper that. He, he, there's Harper looking right at me. That was funny. <laughs> Jesus wouldn't whisper that. He, 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 he isn't trying to just be, hey, nudge, it's time to wake up. This church was dead. He is trying to get them to wake up because they had drifted into this laziness. They had drifted into a, a, an attitude and, a, and, and an apathy that was unacceptable to his sight. It was no longer acceptable to just sleep and rely on your past success. It was not okay with, with, with Christ to just watch this congregation that once was great, once had an amazing thing going on in the community, and was just resting on their laurels, resting on the past that was behind them years and years ago. And sadly, so many Christians do that today. So many congregations think, oh man, when we had that thing 25 years ago, you should have been there. You know what, I'm glad that happened 25 years ago, and I bet it was great. But if it ain't happening today, we shouldn't even be talking about it. If our past success is not 
actively leading to present and future success, then it's, it wasn't worth anything. If you look back at the past and it doesn't lead you to what has happening in the future and what is happening today, then that's great that that happened, but we need to worry about what's happening right now. Jesus doesn't say a single word about their success in the past. You know why? Because he didn't have to. They, all, they knew all the stories. They were repeating all the stories and all the great successes himself. Jesus didn't need to remind them. They said it to themselves every day. That's what they were living off of. He didn't take a single moment to talk about what they had accomplished. He says, wake up. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians and a lot of us individually, myself sometimes, that just needs to wake up and ask myself, how am I doing today? What am I doing today? to please the Lord. I think it is important to, to notice here, you know, Jesus said, wake up and strengthen what remains. Uh, and he also gave us the, the, way, the way, the way how we have to do it. In verse 3, he said, remember and keep it and repent and remember what you received and heard. So we have to remember the word and that is the key way for us to wake up if 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 we are sleeping wake up and strength strengthen what remains good so uh again i i think this gives us the solution that we have to focus on the word of god if we want to solve the problem okay um next section uh verse four and uh, four through six uh here, yet you have, uh, uh, have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And also, verse 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed in dust in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So uh, he is giving us a promise, and he is giving us what to do. So uh, what do you think, guys, about that? The interesting thing in verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments. That implies that most had. That, that most had um, been polluted by the world. And this verse makes me think back to the book of James, to James chapter 1, verse 27, where we're told that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's our job description. That's our responsibility. And unfortunately in Sardis, way too many failed at that part. And it's, cha <clears throat> excuse me. it's challenging to think how, how many of us would have fallen into the most instead of the few. How, how many of us sitting in this auditorium tonight would Jesus have categorized as being among those who had sold their garments, who do look like the world, who are polluted by the world? And how many of us would be linked with the few? Because uh, when, you, uh, when you get to this letter, you want to be, along, you want to be numbered among the few. You, you want to be in the minority here. And unfortunately, in, in the culture does invade our lives way too much. And we let the, uh, 
the, the expectations of the world around us become a part of the expectations of our lives as Christians, and we buy into this, um, oh, it's okay. I can be like the world in this way or that way. I'll, I'll be distinct in a different way. You know, uh, we, we, we get too comfortable with our culture, and we get too comfortable with um, imitating it. Uh, back at when we had charge earlier this year, the, the one illustration that Bruce McClarty gave us that really resonated with me and stood with me was his arm length uh, illustration, where he said, we always are arm's length away from the world. That's how we stay separate. But when the, when the world moves, we move a little bit closer, or, or we advance ourselves towards the world. The world gets uh, more comfortable with sexual immorality. Well, guess what? Then we get more comfortable with it. We just stay an arm length away. And unfortunately, that's what's happening here in Sardis, and that's what's happening in the church today. The church in Sardis is not unique in this, unfortunately. We need to get back to an understanding of James chapter 1 and verse 27 where we're not just remembering orphans and widows, but we're keeping ourselves unstained by the world because that's as important of an of a expectation of God as taking care of widows and orphans in that passage. Uh, just real quickly, I, I think when we think of this idea of being a few left, can you imagine, as I was saying earlier, being one of those few that were remaining faithful to the Word and to the, the, the Christian living, can you imagine how comforting it would be and encouraging it would be to be among those names? I think this, you know, we can focus on being dead and you can focus on what was all wrong with Sardis. But notice Jesus, verse 2, we just talked about it. He doesn't go into deep detail on why they were dead. He just says, wake up and strengthen that which remains. That which remains is verse 4, the few names in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. And I think this would have propelled them to stay faithful even with all those different people falling left and right around them. So to me, I think this is just one of the most encouraging for those who were faithful within the church of Sardis. And today, it should be just as encouraging to us that are holding on and holding fast to the truth of God's word um, and living it every day. Um, here, white means dazzling white, you know, bleached white, no impurity at all. So we have to be white, as white as that white, dazzling white, like the garment of Jesus, whom we'll see someday in heaven. And we'll be like that. We'll try to be like, uh, try to be as white like that. So I think that is the, uh, the letter to Sardis is waking up us today and uh, helping us realize that we have to be as white as that. So anyone? Okay, uh, we had a good study, but we have two baptisms, I mean, two baptisms, two, uh, one baptism. So uh, I will, uh, you know, finish here and let Brother Kyle pray Let's for us. Close out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to study your word. Um, 
we thank you for the letters that have been written to the churches of Asia, that we can uh, open them, read and study them, and, and be reminded of, of how you look at things, and be reminded of what your expectations are. And Lord, help us, help us as a congregation and help us as individuals uh, to uphold the things that you praise and to avoid the things that you criticize. Lord, we're grateful this evening that, that Violet has already made the decision to become your child and that, that uh, uh, Brody is making that decision as well. And we ask for your blessings on them as, as they uh, be- begin their journey as your children and, and help them uh, to be strong and faithful. And Lord, help us as their brothers and sisters to uh, embolden them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die for us because we know that it's only through your grace and his sacrifice that we even have the potential to have our sins washed away. And may we never take that for granted. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.